I actually met Mike Filsame there and I went to dinner with him. There's a bit of a story around that one. I wasn't supposed to go to dinner with him. He was taking out all his butterfly marketing clients, the ones who'd paid for the really high end course. Yeah. I'd actually just bought the ebook on ClickBank, like $30 or something. And he announced from the stage, for all my butterfly marketing clients, I'll see you afterwards. And I, I thought, well, I bought butterfly marketing on ClickBank. So I'll, I'll go and <laughs> just wait in the foyer and I'll meet this guy. This is James Schramko. James Schramko here. Welcome back to my podcast. This is episode 991. Today, I'm chatting with Tega. Nice to see you. Nice to be seen. Hello, James. Hello, James's listeners. So the reason you're here is I published an episode about running a virtual team, and especially hiring from the Philippines. And I had so many questions from my own community, and I've been doing this for more than 10 years. And I wanted to just get the message out. I also have a business with my wife, of course, which I wanted to talk about as well, because that was the one problem I always had when people kept coming to me saying, how do I get a team like yours? And for many, many years, I wouldn't tell them the secret, right? I'd say, well, I got a referral from a friend of mine and they got us some team members and we just kept hiring. And every time we found someone good, we would just hire them in our own business till we got to 67 people. But after we sold the businesses off and we were generating a surplus of referrals, we thought it'd be a good idea to build a business around that. So finally, I could say, well, just get them from the same place that I do. And uh, that's visionfind.com get that out early in the episode. Now I published this episode and you commented on the episode and you shared the episode, which was tremendous. And something you said, Tega, was that you and I have similar values around this concept of bringing in team members. I'd love you to speak to that topic and then sort of introduce where you're in this landscape of online teams and helping out online entrepreneurs get this stuff sorted out. So I guess that's like a double borrow question. I got interested in it because for my 18th birthday, my dad gave me the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That was where I discovered this whole idea of the cash flow quadrant. And from then I realized if I wanted to build a business and have that business operate as a business, it had to have systems and it had to have people. So I started learning about systems and people. When I thought I'd learned enough about systems and I implemented like really in a very rudimentary way. I sit back and think about it. Once I'd implemented that, the puzzle I had to solve was the people bit. And that's when I got started in the journey of thinking that my business could be more than just me. I could bring in people to do things I didn't want to do or things I wasn't good at doing. Where the values come in has been years of being in quote unquote internet marketing, because that's like a little bit of a, it's a very small playing field, but when you're in it, it feels like a very massive playing field. But having been in that field and operated there, I've come to learn about the importance of language. I've come to learn about the importance of positioning. And I've come to learn about the importance of framing. I quickly realized if I was going to build a team, I had to speak differently. I had to use different terms. So I didn't get lumped in with the, let's just say, shady characters of Vincent Morgan Sinclair. I didn't get tacked with the assumption that I was just an internet marketer. And then, as we were saying just before we kicked off the call, the whole virtual assistant thing, I don't like using that term just because, in my opinion, it's a term that's overused. And in its overuse, it's kind of become synonymous with like a, 
synonymous with the way of thinking that doesn't benefit the people that are being labeled as virtual assistants. I mean, some of the degrees, the people using that label virtual assistant, because they're using it, they don't see the breadth and the scope of what, let's just say, like a, a team member can do in their business because you've called them a virtual assistant. So because you're operating from that viewpoint, you're bringing somebody in and in your mind, you're already limiting what they can do in your business because you're limiting what they can do in your business. You're creating this Ouroboros situation whereby because you're thinking limitedly about what they can do, you don't give them the room to grow because you're not giving them the room to grow. They're coming in and in their mind, this is going to be like a, a six to 12 month thing because they need the money, they need to provide for their family. But while they're doing that, they're looking for better opportunities that will help them grow and help them become better. So that's kind of where that came from. And they're no doubt looking for an employer who treats them more like a human and uh, they'll be out of there. That too. And I guess this is a cycle that perpetuates the person who's not hiring well or looking after people as a real team and just using them as indispensable cogs or machines or putting them in the same bucket as something like artificial intelligence tools are going to cop the wrath of uh, what happens when you're not a great leader, right? Yeah. So what do you like to call them? What do you call your team? I call my guys virtual team members. Right. I call my guys virtual team members. Do you think the operative word virtual is sort of part of the challenge here with the way people think about it because they're not there in the office and they don't see them every day and discuss things over the water cooler? They're not sort of out of sight, out of mind. I don't think it's the word because if it, if it was the word that like the virtual as as you're saying, I wouldn't have used it. Virtual makes sense because they're not with you, right? Yeah. I guess another replacement word you could use is remote. Well, I've heard other people use terms like distributed team, and I think with that they're just saying, well, they're in other places. Yeah. They're all around the place, and yeah. and we can open up the global workforce now. You know, we can hire from anywhere, other countries. I'm obviously. I travel the world pretty much every week on my phone calls and all the other people in my business other than my wife are in another country and I'm used to that. Yeah. But I used to have people in an office and, and this is kind of funny. My last job, we were over three physical premises and we had around 70 something people in the business. And I kind of wanted, I just wanted to be at home by myself. And, <laughs> you know, I actually thought, well, my, my online business, I love an online business because I'm not going to have stock. I'm not going to have a physical premises that I have to drive to away from home. And I'm not going to have staff. I'm just not going to have all the hassles. But I ended up having staff. I ended up having it. Now, even though they might be called contractors or export, labor, et cetera, Depending who you're talking to, whether you're putting information together for the tax person, whether it's for an insurance company, they're going to, there might be different labels. Yeah. Like an insurance company is going to make sure you have an agreement with people contracting to you and that there's some indemnities there against them doing any malicious activities or stealing data or causing problems if you're, for example, working on customers' websites, which we did for a while there. Yeah. They'll want written contracts. Tax department, they're going to say, well, if they're not in, not in this country, I, I don't know what it's like for you, but we use pretty much similar law to you. Then their export, you know, that we don't, we're not going to worry about payroll or it's like, yeah, it's exactly the same here. Superannuation or health benefits and all of that stuff. That's yeah. separate. So it's an interesting classification, but I absolutely hand on heart treat my team as full on integrated team members as if. We're all working under one roof, but we just have to imagine that that's the case. And for me, Slack is our office. Cool. And the channels in Slack are our 
areas of the office. You know, I could walk, if I used to manage by wandering around MBWA, which I think I read about in Tom Peters' book, and now I walk around the channels and just have a look at the different channels in our business and, and I wander around and talk to the different teams in those areas, whether it's support or our content producing area or um, our website maintenance, et cetera. And I'm still interacting with them just like they're in a physical place, but they just happen to be in another country. Yeah. For me anyway, the big thing is the mindset, which is why that episode that you did really resonated with me. I saw your post on Facebook asking four questions people had or issues that they had that you would talk about. Yeah. I did something similar, I think it was in twenty it was I think twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one. I promise I didn't where, copy it. <laughs> no, no, it's just <laughs> fine. I'm not accusing you of copying it. It's a really great strategy. It's like why not go out to your own audience, people who follow you or subscribe to your channel or page or whatever yep. and say, what are your questions? And then you prepare some content that answers the questions you know, as best you possibly can. I answered every single question they asked me. And then you can go back to that same audience and say, I've just published the episode that answers all your questions. Yep. And in this case, it works well because I do have a service that people can go and use and they did and it was great. And that's not the prime motivation for it. It's certainly a consideration. I like to get, you know. The prime motivation was you. you. I like to sponsor myself. <laughs> I love it when people buy my products. Yeah, the prime motivation was it. Uh, however, I do get very emotional about the way that people treat people in the other country. I do get emotional about poor leadership ability and how that impacts people because I see the other side of it. When I visit the Philippines, I mean, I just lived there for two months and I see how the families live. I interact in society there. I know the, the burdens they have and how important that salary is. That team member will be paying for several family members. They'll be putting them through school. They'll be paying for the parents' medications. They will be responsible for the food on the table. There's a lot of pride involved, but it's a more serious game. It's not just a job. They don't have a choice. Yeah. And if they're married to a difficult boss or a nasty boss or got to help them if the boss wants to install this spyware on the computer and track them and micromanage them, it's very unpleasant and I don't like that. And it's, it's like if I can educate people, be a better employer, be a better leader, build a fantastic team, it's the very reason I can have an amazing life. But at the same time, I want my team to have a great life. I'm pretty strong with them about that. Please have a good life. You know, go and have a meal occasionally. Take time off. I'm not cracking the whip. I'm not driving the slaves. You know, I want you to have a good life. We're a team and we work together. And it's all communicated in the, the weekly meeting that we have, the, the cadence of it, the contributions. We all do our bit. And I'm really proud of the milestones we're able to achieve, especially we, we just hit one right now, like as of recording just crossed a brand new record we've ever done in our business. And this won't be impressive to some people, but it's impressive to me. That's what's important. We just reached over 100,000 people in the last 30 days on my Instagram channel. Congratulations. Thanks. But, you know, we used to get a couple of hundred or a few thousand. So we've worked together as a team, but I've said, okay, team, let's make better content. I'm responsible for coming out with better starting content and then we have to edit it and we have to publish it regularly and we have to keep a minimum standard and we have to figure out how to get in front of the right people and we have to put a call to action to bring people to our website and to take an action like we have to work together on this and we have worked together 
and we did great stuff. And I know when I post it to our wins channel, I can feel the pride, I can feel the smiles, I can feel the celebration that we did this together. And it, it makes me emotional talking about it because you can't do this game by yourself. And this is why I have, I, when I hear people say they're a solopreneur, I think, well, what you're really saying to me is you're probably going to be stuck at a couple of hundred grand a year and you're going to be doing most things in your business. Yeah. I think there's a sweet spot between solopreneur and $10 million a year revenue baller, which is a beautiful little business that has a three to five team members doing all the stuff you don't want to do that they like to do and they're good at. And you just do the few things you love and you have a low stress, high profit margin, beautiful business. That's what I like. And that's what I've been helping people build. I'm wondering what your position on that is. Do you see the difference between solopreneur and $10 million baller? So I guess like my, my viewpoint would be a little bit different. Different in the sense that I'm not really thinking about it in terms of the revenue. Maybe I should start thinking about it that way. But I guess my key word here would kind of be like a lifestyle business. I build the business to the level where it supports my lifestyle. And then looking at how the business is growing or what I'm doing to grow the business, I'm now looking at it from a point of, does this serve the life that I want to lead or is this taken away from the life that I want to lead? I think we're on the same page. Yeah. I mean, there's implied things. For me, when you have a $10 million 15 million, 20 million dollar revenue business, it implies you're going to have complexity. Yeah. You're going to have a bigger team. You're going to be more competitive in the market. There'll be more threats. There'll be more challenges to that. There'll be some wear and tear. And I perceive, and it might be wrong, but I perceive that it might be harder for me to go surfing every day if I have a 20 million dollar revenue business because it's probably going to target me and, and want me in there. And I know because when I had a big team and we were doing quite several million dollars a year, it was on my mind, even though it was running, it's still I'm responsible. It's like you might be the captain of the ship. You might be Captain Smith on the Titanic up there in your wheelhouse. Sipping your cup of tea. Bridge house, whatever they call it. But you've got the whole team doing everything, manning the engines, feeding the crew. Like you're not doing all the work yourself, but it's a big responsibility. Like one little iceberg and it can all go pear-shaped, right? Yeah. And then, then I see solopreneurs and what that implies to me is They've put a filter just like I did when I quit my job. They're, they're not going to build a, a team. And maybe some people are probably not good enough leaders that they should build a team until they get some training. But it also means you're kind of stuck with some shitty jobs. Like the things I used to hate the most were accounting. I used to hate putting it on my paperwork. I put it out on this huge table and I'd spend a couple of days doing it and it was like pulling teeth. I hear that. I used to hate loading up stuff to my website. I used to hate logging into my support desk to answer, how do I change my credit card or whatever? Like, please save me from that, <laughs> right? That's why I think there's a sweet spot for me. And I'm never saying to someone else, well, you, you should have the same goals as me. Everyone's going to be different. But when I use terms like solopreneur or $10 million revenue, I think that each of those has certain characteristics that are typical and I seem to navigate a lot in the six to seven figure zone for my audience. That's my sweet spot. If someone comes to me and they're doing $300,000 a year, but they're kind of maxed out, it's pretty easy to get them to a million dollars a year and working half as much using the, the way that I do things yeah. because I'm going to start finding leverage for them. And it'll be over like several different areas. But what I notice over and over and over again they don't have a good team. They don't have systems. So people and systems are critical if you want to go from a one-man band to a, a bigger thing. But yeah. then at some point, I think when you start hitting a few million dollars a year, 
you really need to bring in sort of senior level help with the people and systems or that will be your job. So let me turn the tables and ask you a question. <laughs> Ooh, this oh, this is going to be something that's going to be useful for me. When you had the big business, what was it that made you decide that you wanted to trim things down, right? So look, let, let, me, let me rephrase. How did you go from wanting to be the one-man band and not wanting to have a team just because of your experience working in corporate and having the big team and having big premises? And where was the line for you in deciding, okay, I've said I don't want to have a team. I'm now going to take on the team. And how did you decide how big or how little to keep that team? So it was just me. Okay. And I was starting to feel maxed out. I, um, so for context, I started my online journey at the end of 2006, I think I registered my first domains. Through 2007, or no, it's probably end of 2005, but through 2006 and 2007, I went from sort of zero to building up hundreds of dollars a month to thousands of dollars a month. By the time I got to the beginning of 2008, I was making about $10,000 a month. And I sort of jump, actually jumped from $5,000 a month to $10,000 a month within a month by using a technique that I found in a John Reese DVD series called Traffic Secrets. Cool. So that was good, but I wasn't quite there because my wage at the time was around $300,000 a year. So that was my trigger. That was the target. In my mind, I can't quit my job until I at least match my salary. But it was a bit of a gap. And so there was this bunch of things that happened at once, but I bought the Traffic Secrets DVDs on sale well and truly after the original launch. The original launch happened as I was coming online. John Reese had his first million-dollar day. Yeah. It was the first internet marketer to do that. I remember that. And I think it was about 2005, around about then. And, but I didn't buy that until later, until the end of 2007. I bought it on sale. It was like the end of the run. And I watched the DVDs. My family were on holidays. I was down there with them at a beach house. They were at the beach and I was in the living room watching DVDs, right, on my one-week holiday from my grinding corporate job because I just needed to get out of it. I could see the axe falling. There, there was a recession looming. There was a financial fallout happening with bad loans. And I'm in this high-paid job, lots of pressure. I had to just put my nose to the grindstone, right? So I'm watching this. I got this, I, all the things he said, I'm like, yep, done it, done it, done it, done it. And then there's one thing I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, so I doubled my, I went from five to $10,000 a month. I also went to an internet marketing conference, the first one in Australia from a, a local guy, John Jan. And at the conference, I'm like, gee, I, I know most of this stuff. And I actually met Mike Phil Same there. And I went to dinner with him. There's a bit of a story around that one. But I wasn't supposed to go to dinner with him. He was taking out all his butterfly marketing clients, the ones who'd paid for the really high end course. Yeah. I'd actually just bought the ebook on ClickBank, like $30 or something. And he announced from the stage, for all my butterfly marketing clients, I'll see you afterwards. And I, I thought, well, I bought butterfly marketing on ClickBank. So I'll, I'll go and <laughs> just wait in the foyer and I'll meet this guy. And so I met him and uh, he said, come on, we'll go to the Hilton in Sydney. And so I gave a lift to some other guy, Nikhil Parekh. And uh, on the way there, I'm like, so what do you do? And he goes, oh, I just run AdWords. And he had Perry Marshall's definitive guide to AdWords. And he told me he was doing like $100,000 a month in traffic and I'm like whoa okay 
and I'm giving this guy a lift because you know he he didn't want to drive his car into the city. <laughs> and when we got what got to dinner, I had a chat to Mike, and he said, "Oh, mate, if you're in the car industry like I was, and you're already up to whatever you're doing now," he said, "You'll make a hundred thousand dollars a month in no time." I remember going home just like feeling ten feet tall. I thought this guy believes in me. He thinks I can actually do it. And around about this time. In the dealership, there was a, uh, a lady who was a temporary receptionist and she was really good. She was normally doing tour guides and our normal receptionist was always sick and couldn't come and so we got this temporary one. And just towards the end of her term, she said, uh, look, I'm finishing up. And I said, well, before you go, could you help me? You've just done this role. Could you help me write a job ad to replace our receptionist? Because she's told us she's not coming back. Yeah. And so she said, okay, well, tell me what the receptionist you know, criteria are. So I told her and then she went away. And then a minute or so later, she came back and I said, oh, yeah, is there, was there anything else? She goes, oh, no, no, I finished. I said, what? She goes, yeah, I finished. And she came in and she showed me the ad she'd written and printed out. And I'm like, this is amazing. I'm like, you've got so much talent. Like, why are you doing temporary reception stuff instead of sitting at home in your tracksuit pants, writing articles for Americans for $10 a pop? And she said, tell me more. <laughs> and I said, well, there's this whole sort of internet marketing thing. You know, back then I was in the Warrior Forum and I was writing my own articles for the website software I was promoting. And she wanted me to tell all about it. And she goes, if this is so good, then why aren't you doing that? And I said, watch this space. Like, I'm going to be doing this. And I was close, but not quite there. And I said to her, I'll tell you what, I will pay you. I'll pay you $100 to write 10 articles about this software that I'm promoting. She goes, okay. And she did. And I paid her. And so I basically found myself an article writer in the Mercedes Benz dealership. And I ordered thousands and thousands of articles from Kerry. And over the years, she created her own business, Kerry Finch Writing. She lives like two blocks from me here in uh, Noosa. Nice. And she built her own team and she's really successful with it and a great writer. So that was my first writer. So that was one of my first hires. The other one I got was a support person because while I was at work, it was really hard to try and, you know, on my lunch break or whatever, I have to log in and check my help desk and look for tickets for people who had bought my, uh, they bought the software and they were claiming a bonus from me. So like five or six yeah. times a day or 10 times a day, I would have to send them their link to the bonus. I hadn't automated it yet. I was getting a bit of a grind. And through another friend, I got a hold of this guy who'd worked on a, I think a film called The Secret and he was doing the support as sort of a geeky guy. And I think he's quite famous now actually, but back then he wasn't. And he said, look, I'll set up a support desk for you and I'll man it. I think it was $1,000 a month. It's either 500 or 1,000, I'm not quite sure, but I, th I think it was $1,000 a month. And I did the numbers in my head and I thought, well, if I don't have to log in at lunchtime, <laughs> I'm going to get home. And he does that for me. That would actually pay for itself because I could do other things. I can then ask Kerry for some more articles and then put them up on Ezine and onto the website. And so that was my second. So the two team members, I had the support person and the article writer. And so I went, already went from zero to two. Yeah. And then that was sort of it. But then what happened was a few years later, a couple of things happened like me. As a result of watching those DVDs, I booked a ticket to Yannick Silva's event in America, Underground 4 which was in March 2008, got on the plane. I used one day of annual leave, the Monday. I flew to America. I didn't know a single person. I wrote down a lot of notes. 
I network with people like Ryan Lee and uh, Mike Hill and all these super famous Mike Geary, all these mega people like Tim Houston. Mega gurus. Mega gurus. Like Mike Filsane was there, Brad Fallon was there. They're all there and didn't know a soul. I entered a competition and won it and I got access to Maverick and that was for a million dollar plus online businesses and that was six weeks later. So I had to go back. This is probably about May or June. And so I had to put in more annual leave, go back to America. First time I've been there as an adult, you know, since I was a kid. And when I was on that, I was now I'm doing the Vomit Comet space shuttle. I'm there with Tony Hawk, the skateboarder, Peter Diamontes, the like billionaire. Eben Pagan was there. Like all these absolute legends. And I'm just like, oh my God. And I network with them. And I just helped them. I found out a lot of them weren't really good with websites or SEO or whatever. And I applied some of the paid traffic strategies that some of them taught me. There was one guy I sat next to on the plane there. I sat next to this guy, Tim, and he was making $100,000 a month as a super affiliate. And I talked to him about his strategy and it sounded so simple. And that recalibrated. And he said to me, like, why are you ripping yourself off? Like, why do you take such a low wage in a job when you could be doing this stuff? And I really, it really sort of conflicted me. And then after that, one of the guys I sat next to was making $100,000 a day. And it just like, whoa, that just blew my mind. And after this event, I think it was six weeks later, I put a few ideas together and quit my job. But I, I ended up going out and finding a couple of clients to pay me thousands of dollars per month to do their website and their marketing, PPC, SEO, the rest of it, 2008. Since then, as soon as I reached my threshold, I, I quit. And so I was making $100,000 out of the gate from the first month I quit my job ever since. This is middle of 2008 to now. Never missed it. And the thing is, at the time, I tried to try and get a couple of people to help me because I realized, oh, I'm starting to get a bit of extra work. But what I also did was choose business models that were quite leveraged. So I started my community in the beginning of 2009 because of the affiliate thing that I promoted going broke <laughs> yeah. and not paying me. And that was a very leveraged model. And I was doing affiliate marketing was very leveraged. I used to promote launches and stuff. And I was doing the two main clients that I had, 5,500 each. And I was still doing my ebook. Then I started promoting recurring solutions. But the SEO thing was where I really started to need a team. So a couple of things happened. One is the software I was promoting started to not be the best solution. And even though I was still, it sort of dribbled down about 5,000 a month, I just stopped promoting it. Now, if you go into the internet marketing space, most internet marketers would not turn off a $5,000 per month income stream just because they don't think it's the best product anymore. A lot of them will promote rubbish and keep banking the checks. Yeah. And so I turned it off and then I started building websites. And then around this time, I read the four-hour work week and a friend of mine, Mark Lindsay, had an SEO business and a link building service. And I just remarked to him, hey, Mark, you know, like I've read four-hour work week. They promote this your man in India. And I've put in my details on the waiting list, but they've got a big waiting list because the book's really popular. And he said, oh, man, you should, you should look at the Philippines. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, we've got a team there. I can help you um, find someone. Like, what are you looking for? And I said, I, honestly, I've got no idea. I don't even know what they would do, <laughs> right? At this time, I had an Indian agency supplying all my SEO stuff. They came and pitched me when I was speaking in New Zealand. They said, we can white label 
you can sell our stuff on top. I had an army of affiliates selling it. I had the Indian supply, but the supply was starting to get a bit patchy and I was concerned about the quality. Yeah. And so he arranged two interviews with me for the Philippines and I hired one and I did, said, I don't, I'm not sure what we're going to do together, but I'm going to just show you what I do and just see where we go from here. And then she was in a call center and then we got another one. And then I said to my client, right, I said, this Mercedes-Benz client, I said, you should get someone in the Philippines. They're amazing. They can help with putting this stuff on the website. And, and then I was sort of paused and I'm looking at them and I'm looking at their sort of glazed eyes and I realized, oh, this is not going to work. They're not going to be good, a good boss for this people. They're not going to know what to tell them. I'd said, I'll tell you what, I'll hire someone and have them work on your account most of the time and then you just pay me. Does that work? They said, oh, yes, that would be way better. So the third one was kind of my client was paying for, but they worked on the client's business for three days a week and mine for two. And then I thought this is a good model. So I did a couple more and I had five and then six. And I think we got to about nine. And that's when the SEO service was starting to really wobble a bit. So I said to one of the team members, do you think we could take over the SEO? And she said, yeah, I think we can. So I gave them one of the products. And then we went from, so it was her and an assistant in that division. And the first month they did like 10 or $20,000 worth of volume. And then within six months, we had 38 people in that SEO team and we were doing 120,000 a month. So they just scaled like crazy. And then same with the websites. We started building websites and went crazy there. So next thing you know, I had 67 people. I had a team doing building websites. We built 2,000 of our own websites. We had a link network. We were serving ads. We could rank anything. It was a magic era. And that's when I had a lot of people. And the only reason it scaled down, I think, to answer your second question, there were some outside forces at play, but... The short answer is one of our clients was buying so much of our supply that it got to the point where it made sense for him to buy the business because he would either replace us and that would put in jeopardy a large chunk of my team yeah. or he could buy it and save the profit margin on what he was buying, which made sense. And he purchased the business from me, paid it off, took over, I think, 30-something people and I also sold my website business because I really didn't like the website business. It was such a difficult business, so commoditized. Yeah. And that left my core team, which I still have now, which is why I've got team members ticking over 13 years. So the, the key thing there for me is, um, like if you're talking about characteristics of, of success, even when you didn't know what to do, you trusted yourself to figure it out. Well, I made that promise to myself when I had a job. Okay. Just for context, you know, I had a mortgage, so I had a property, I'd make payments, I had four kids. The job was most of my income, but then I was able to replace that with the online income. But of course, you get this extra money. Now I had two incomes, I was like making a lot more money. And then a year or so, a year and a half out of when I quit my job, I had this huge tax bill. It's like, oh my God. But I made a promise to myself, if I quit my job, I promise to always innovate and be responsible for my own outcome because I do not want to go back to this place. Cool. And the only nightmare I have is that I'm working in a car dealership. You know, that's, that's just, and most of my friends who worked in the car dealership have the same nightmare because like you said before, when you're in it, it feels like that's your whole world. It's a frightening environment to be in when you're in like this command and conquer, hardcore, competitive environment. And I, I move away from that. 
And the funny thing is when I often see little entrepreneurs, these online people, they've maybe come through university or had a a low-key job and they start building a monster like I escaped. They start building this bureaucracy. They start building rules and regulations. They start building hierarchies and managers and stress. And I'm like, I don't know if you're going to be happy with that. And you know, one of the most popular episodes I've published of late was the one with Chris Evans, where we're talking about maybe a massive revenue, maybe you can scale too much. And his story is a profound example of why it's not for everyone. Yeah, I think um, at the core, it comes down to self-awareness, doesn't it? Because you knew, you knew what you wanted to get away from. You had an idea what you wanted to build. And I think you've just, you've explored this middle ground beautifully well, staying aware of exactly what you are trying to build. And you also had the courage to make decisions and turn off income streams that took away from this idea. And I've done it last year and I've just done it this week. Excellent. And part of the thing is I've got a toolkit. When I was in the Mercedes-Benz dealership, we had the most expensive accountants benchmarking all the dealers, punching numbers, showing us metrics and indicators and all the benchmarks that needed to be achieved and we were paid accordingly. So I had a good education in, in the data analysis and decision-making. I like this DDD, right? Yeah. Get the data, make decisions, and then do it. So often and on a regular basis, I'll just put my whole business on a whiteboard. I'll get all the numbers from my team. I'll analyze it by product line, by the softer thing, the feelings, you know, emotion. How do I rate these customers? How does this part of the business make me feel? I look at other factors like, is this a growth market or a declining market? Is there a capital value growing here or is it just cash? Is it defensible or am I under attack? And based on all of this inputs, then I'll start to form a pretty clear path forward. Most of my customers benefit from this kind of insight because they struggle with this entirely. (laughs) They just get bull ringed and led around the paddock by a rope or they just sit in the corner shivering, not knowing what to do. So yes, you absolutely have to be responsible for your own outcomes and you have to be present of mind. What would you call that? Prescient? Anyway, you have to have acuity. You have to know exactly what's going on and then adjust. I'm seeing the same thing happen right now with artificial intelligence. Fake artificial intelligence. It's causing people to shiver in the corner in fear and it's causing people to seek opportunities and move forward. And then there's people like me who observe and gauge what's happening and just slowly move in a new direction without doing anything crazy. Yeah. The whole AI debate, it's more machine learning. Like, yes, it's, it's good, but it's, it's more machine learning. It's not sentient yet. You can't tell it. Write me an article. You have to keep feeding it stuff and everybody's losing their mind. Well, the thing is, you know, this was my first reaction. I need to go straight to my team and I need to tell my team they all have a job. None of them will be replaced. That this is not a threat to us. This is a tool in our toolkit we will augment and become more powerful with. And I think a lot of employers maybe have forgotten that step. Maybe they forgot to tell the team that they're safe or that they're not going to lose their job. And maybe right now, as this podcast goes out, there'll be a business owner listening to it and have an oh shit moment. Oh, I wonder which one of my team members has a foot out the door because I've been so enamored with all this artificial intelligence that I forgot to tell them that I'm not going to let them go, right? Everyone in my team knows we need all hands on deck. 
all it means is our output's improved. We can have more leveraged way to serve our clients. We can reach more market. That's why we got more social reach because we've been able to augment some of the manual processes we were doing of being able to be sped up in the sort of foundational phases, but we still hand finish all the rest. And it's the hand finish part where you need the team at this point. Yeah. I think they didn't do what you did in letting my team know. When Jarvis came up, Jarvis now called Jasper, there was a spurt of tools that came out along with it. I picked up a few of those because I wasn't ready for like a monthly commitment to just Jasper's last Jarvis at the time. When I picked it up, I played with it. I saw the benefit in my eyes at the time was it's a productivity enhancer. So as soon as I picked up and as soon as I got used to it, I recorded a few videos and I gave it to our writer, Gabby, and just said, this is a cool little tool. It will help you do your job better. If you need any help, here's how I use it. Here's how I envision using it. And from there... I just left it in her hands. And then with the recent explosion of chat GPT and everything blowing up on the news, I all of a sudden remembered, hey, I have this tool. Maybe I should actually check it out. So I played with chat GPT. And just this week, I, I dropped a message to the team, like exposing new tools and, and what they do. And Gabby just said, hey, yeah, I've been keeping an eye on it. And I've been using it. And on days where I don't feel like my brain is performing like it should, I use it to create prompts and I use it for ideas. I'm like, excellent. So... You kind of know that your job is safe because you're using it in the way that I would use it. We have a junior writer, May, who I think hasn't been as exposed as Gabby has been, but just like I said, I forgot about it. So she's seen me and Gabby talk about it in Slack and she's putting out all these mind-blowing emojis. I'm like, you know you have, you can ask for access to it to use it as well. So I've just shared access with May. And I think what's kind of telling there is the fact that I found it, I played around with it, day-to-day I have no real use for it because I don't create the content the team do. Obviously they do it with my guidance. I just give them the tools that they need. So I forgot about it. I gave it to Gabby. Gabby's been using it. Maybe where I dropped the ball was not letting May in on the secret ball. Now she knows about it. It will be good to see how it improves the output that she has and how it helps her basically do her job better. It sounds like a great relationship you have with your team there. When we got a hold of Jarvis, which was a Stupid name to call it. Obviously, trademark issues straight out of the gate. Yeah, Marvel and Co. It's never a good idea to take a brand that someone else has got. I say that in in the you know cheekily because it turns out the name that that I got suggested for my book ended up already having a book of the same name. We discovered the day we we're publishing it, which sucked. I didn't name it, and uh, you know, so that's just something I should just point out. Someone will say, "Hey, you, but you did that anyway." We used the tool, we were using it, and as what we're noticing is the outputs weren't good enough. They weren't to the level that we could get. I said to my team, I think your results are actually better than what the tool's producing. So we actually unsubscribed from that tool last year. Yeah. And I've said to my team now, like there's so many tools coming, I will screen out and filter through our own community. Thankfully, we have a community who just alerts us when there's a great tool. It ends up in my forum, my community. And I say, here's a tool. This is what it's supposed to do. You're welcome to try it. They usually go and check the knowledge base. They try a demo on it. They decide if they want to commit to paying for it. But we only pay on a monthly basis now because I believe in a year from now, a chunk of these tools won't exist. There'll just be so many people racing. This is a space race. It's an arms race for all these AI tools. Yeah. And they can get confused with it. And I, I keep my team focused on tool rules. Remember with the tool rules, if we have a tool, it's because we really need it. We can't survive without it. 
if we're going to have a tool, then we want to make sure we get the best in class. So before we commit to something, let's see what the top two or three tools in the market are for this category. And the third one is make sure we use it properly, like learn how to use it. So they go through the training or whatever. And we often do reviews. I get a monthly P&L, profit and loss statement, by line item of every product, every cost, including labor and one of our costs in the kind of business we have is tools. Yep. And I look through the tools list and I'll bring it to the meeting and I'll say, I'm just going to read out some of the tools. You know, I will paste them into the chat here. Could you please let me know who's using this? And they'll say, yeah, me. No. And we might find a couple of tools here and there that we've stopped using yep. and we just delete. I want to delete all tools if possible and then add back in the ones that we actually critically need. And by doing this over over time, a lot of the names of the tools have changed, and some in, some out. We find the limitations. This is the extraordinary thing. When a lot of my clients are raving about a tool, and they ask about it, I'll say to the team, "What we used to use this tool, and they'll say, yeah, but it doesn't allow you to do this, or what happens is it doesn't integrate that. And they always find the limitation or where it's not effective and replace it with something else or nothing. And there was this classic one, we used to have these plugins, and I said, this license is up for renewal, do we need to renew it? And they said, no. I said, okay, what, we don't like the tool anymore? And they said, oh no, we, we made our own plugin to do that. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> Thank Thanks you. Thanks for letting me know, guys. Yeah, so they just, they just learned how to code their own plugins and replace the tools. I think one was a social widget that goes after the post and they just made their own because they were sick of trying to make it integrate or fix this one line of code that it was throwing yeah. errors for or whatever. Then this is kind of like whenever I listened to that episode, that's why I thought that our line of thinking was kind of like on the same path. I'd rather hire good people so long as they fit the criteria that I'm looking for and then give them the freedom to either grow into or grow out of the role that I'm bringing them in for. There's a story by a guy called John Jonas. He owns and runs onlinejobs.ph. Very similar to what you just said, wherein you hire the people, so long as they're the right people, you give them the task, you tell them, like, go make all the mistakes that you need to make. Like, I trust you to go make all the mistakes that you need to make. So long as you're doing it and learning from it, the business, aka everybody, is going to benefit from that. So I took that to heart and that's how I run my team. And I got the feeling that that was how you run your team as well. Obviously, there needs to be guardrails to make sure the mistakes they make don't bankrupt the business or don't create issues for your clients. Well, we had um, two examples of that this week. Uh, one, the team member made a, a mistake, but it was, a, it was an easy mistake to make because we shut down a program and then someone tried to order it. Yeah. And we said, look, this program is no longer available. And then I saw a payment come through and uh, I asked the team, like, hey, what happened? And they said, yeah, look, he actually, he followed a link in an email and found an old page with the thing. Like this guy was determined to join no matter what. And they're like, should we refund it? Or what do we do? I'm like, oh, this is hilarious. Like this guy is desperately trying to buy our product that we're trying to stop him from buying. Like this is the opposite problem most businesses have. So we all had a laugh about it. And the thing is I said, Obviously, we'll update our SOP if we change a program to go and find you know, old pages or email links, which chase some yep. of the old email links. But it's such an easy situation to have happened. I would have made the same situation happen. There's no way I would have remembered to do it. And they just put this sort of sigh of relief emoticon. Yep. And then I made a mistake this week too. I looked for a post and I thought there was something there and it seemed to have gone. And I'm like, hey, what happened to this post? 
And they're like, oh, it's still showing for me. And then I looked and I've got the slightly different URL. So it's like, okay, my bad. I'm looking at the wrong page, right? Lucky I'm not in running an online business or anything. And then we all laugh about that. So you will make errors. They'll make errors. The way you handle the error, I think, is going to determine whether that person's still in your organization a year from now. I, I just let my guys know that generally mistakes are learned opportunities. I did not come into this life knowing everything that I know. I had to learn it. And to learn stuff, you have to make mistakes. So you're going to make mistakes. Just don't hide it. Tell me about this unless it happens. So if I need to do damage control, I can do damage control. And then once we fix it, we can have a laugh about it. And I think that creates uh, a very nice working environment because people are not worried about stepping foot wrong. People are not worried about, oh my goodness, I can't make a mistake. They know they're not going to make a mistake because we do everything off of processes and SOPs. But when they do make mistakes, personally, I look at it as it starts with me because there was a hole, but there was something I wasn't aware of in the process. I can't start berating them for that without having given them the resources to do the job effectively. And going back to what I said earlier, whenever I had the, I had the interview with my guys, that was something that they really appreciated because they said it's not something that every business owner that they've worked with has done. They've said it, but the actions have betrayed the words that they spoke. It's so rare. I can tell from just talking to you, Tiger, that you'd be a great boss to work for. I hope I'd be a good boss to work for. From everything you say, it sounds like you will be a great boss to work for as well. When they say I'm the best boss ever, it makes me feel good because they've had other bosses. <laughs> but they're all still there. That's right. The, the ultimate evidence. If they're still there 10 years later, you know something's working. I, I love my team. I'm really proud of their achievements. We move forward together. I've told them they, they work with me for as long as we're doing stuff. I, I'm planning to do this for a long time. We keep making adjustments. Our business has always been healthy and thriving. Thankfully, we haven't been under major pressure ever, yeah. which is because of what they're doing and how they reinforce all the initiatives. And no matter what I throw their way, they just deal with it. I'll say, I'd like to rename this product, which means we'll have to change it on our website, any carts, email references, et cetera. And I'm sure there'll be a whole lot, a bunch of other things that I haven't considered, but I'm sure you'll put some thought to. And they just go on, yes, on it, you know, and I noticed it all changed through the system. I love that. The last time we spoke was many, many years ago when you came on, I think we had a private chat, it wasn't recorded or anything, we were just talking about setting up memberships. And I I remember back then, you're such a nice person and inquisitive and a great implementer and you went away and did the things we talked about. And so that's why I follow you on social. I'm going to drop your website here for other people who want to, follow you so it's uh tagerdigby.com close enough tagerdigby.com diag diag it's very that's pretty fancy it's very nigerian is it very nigerian t-e-g-a-d-i-e-g-b-e.com we'll put it in the show notes episode 991 who do you work with just out of curiosity like if someone's listening to this and you think they'd be someone that you should be talking to um that's a great question. And so of course I've been trying to answer for like five years. I think <laughs> I, I know you're I know you've been helping other people and yeah. you're like an incredible supporter and they got a lot of loyalty to you and that's why I rate you. Thank you. Primarily I work with uh, I work with online business owners. I would say one man bands that are looking to put in foundation systems, one man bands that are aware of the scope of what they have to do. And they may not want to build the team themselves or they may not want to do it themselves. And that's kind of where I come in. We have a chat about what they want to do. Then 
I go away and I build things, like my team and I build things. Luckily, I've been doing this for so long that I have a stack of processes that now we don't really have to build. It's just a case of transplanting it into a business. And if they need help, then they can speak to me about helping them find help, like hiring people, virtual team members and things like that. Love it. And thank you for sharing my other episode. It was very generous of you. Uh, And, you know, it's good when community supports community. And I'm glad we could have a chat about team members and and going a bit deep and, and, uh, you know, peeling back a bit of the history on on how my team got to where it is and what it is. It's all good. It's all good. Such a fun game though, isn't it? It is. I appreciate listening to that episode. And like I said, I I picked up a few things from it. Even speaking with you, there are a few things that I've picked up that personally... I think um, my communication with my team needs to be a little bit better. And I'm saying that just because I play with the tools as they come to some cool thing, I forget about it instead of saying maybe pass it on to the team so they can actually get the benefit from it as well. So, yeah, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And uh, I'm sure we'll bump into each other again, Tega. Thank you. I'm sure we will. Thanks for having me, James. All right. Hey, so my podcast is coming up to episode 1000. And I'm wondering if you want to be a part of it. So my team have sent me this thing here. I've asked them to put together. What I want to hear about, if you've been listening to my podcast over any length of time, have you had a success from it? Have you had an insight from it? Did you have a favorite guest? Was there one soundbite you heard that had a big, profound impact in some way in your life or business? Do you just have any general comments or thoughts? that you would like to share that will go out into this episode. So my team are collecting a couple of audios and videos. You could use Loom like I'm recording this on or send audio if you prefer or a private YouTube video or whatever. I'd be keen to get you to, to send some special memory of the podcast to my team. If you send it to support at jamesshramco.com, keep it short, please. Just keep it under a minute or two minutes. And we might be able to include that in the episode 1000 and uh, have a celebration around this uh, show. Thank you so much. This is James Schramko.